Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Is masculinity toxic? Well, welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. Really excited about the conversation I got to have with Nancy Piercy on her brand new book. But before we get into that, just a real quick production note. You know, technology is awesome until it's not. So I had a little bit of some technology issues with the microphone, uh, but I don't want that to distract you from the fascinating and very important conversation that I have with Nancy on her brand new book. So just wanted to give you a quick heads up on that. But here's a little bit about Nancy Piercy. She is the author of the book we're going to be discussing today, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes, as well as Love Thy Body, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and Total Truth. We've had her on on several of these podcasts before talking about some of those books. One of my personal favorites is Total Truth. She is a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. She has been quoted in The New Yorker and Newsweek, highlighted as one of the five top women apologists by Christianity Today, and hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. So, Nancy, just really honored for you to be joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here, and it's good to see you again. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember Remember a couple of years ago, we were, we were on a, a trip to Israel with a big group together. And one of the conversations we had in the lobby was, hey, what, what are you working on? And you were talking about working on this book. And I was like, that's amazing. I can't wait till we get to have a conversation about that. And I know you've done a lot of research, but let me just start with kind of the, kind of the first at the beginning, which is why, why write this book now? And I know it's personal. I know you talk about some of that in the intro, but maybe talk about what led you to feel the need to write on this topic. Well, do you know, the actual trigger was when I was reading the sociological literature on Christian men. And mm-hmm. I found out that psychologists and sociologists who studied evangelical Christian men have discovered that they test out as the most loving fathers and husbands. And nobody knows this. (laughs) I I had to go digging in the academic journals to find it. And when I found it, I said, I've just got to get this out there. So, and and to set this up, of course, uh, Christians are usually actually treated as the most toxic of of, of men out there, right? Exhibit A of toxic masculinity. Uh, in fact, let me just give you one quote. It was easy to find lots of quotes online, but one of them was um, somebody said, a, a writer wrote that um, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that oh, wow. we see permeating Christianity today. And so what happened is the social scientists looked at these accusations and said, well, where's your evidence? You know, you're making these charges. Where's your evidence? So they went out and did the research. And what they found out is that, yes, in fact, Christian husbands and fathers are the most loving of any major group in America. And of course, the first pushback I get is, well, sure, their wives said they were happy. Their husbands are sitting right there. So it's important to say, no, they they interviewed the wives separately. And so they're really saying that the wives reported the highest level of happiness with their husband's expression of love and affection. Evangelical fathers are the most engaged with their children, 
both in terms of shared activities like sports and church youth group, and in terms of discipline like limiting screen time and enforcing bedtime. Hmm. Evangelical husband, uh, evangelical couples are the most, uh, the least likely to divorce. You know, the most stable marriages, least likely to divorce, of any major group in America. And then the real stunner was they have the lowest rate of domestic violence of any group in America. So this is what I said. When I read this, I was blown away. I didn't wow. know this. When I, I speak on this, you know, uh, Christian universities, conferences, seminaries, you always see people sort of visibly <laughs> uh, sit back and their jaws drop open because we have been told that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of culture. Hmm. Yeah. And in fact, Right in my yeah, that's that that's the stat over and over and over again. Right, it's just over. It's like and then like every Father's Day, it's like happy, happy Father's Day, everybody, and then they drop a few more stats on everybody. <laughs> exactly, and what I found in my research is that that is actually one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. And so, and so actually, what the researchers did is they went back to the data and they divided out truly committed, authentic Christian evangelical men who attend mm -hmm. church regularly from nominal Christian men. My students okay. don't even know what the word nominal means, so I have to explain. Yep. It means in name only. N-O-M is Latin for name. Okay. These men test out shockingly different. So these are men who don't go to church regularly, who hang around the fringes maybe of the Christian world, yeah, but their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They're the least engaged as fathers. They have the highest rate of divorce, even mm. higher than secular men. Wow! And really shock, shock me. They have the highest rate of domestic violence of any major group in America. So this is mm. why the numbers are so misleading. If you just yeah. do a study on evangelicals, you know. Altogether, you're, you're going to get men who are better than secular men and men who are worse than hmm. the secular world. And so, of course, the statistics are going to be misleading. Yeah. And so this this is what we're up against. We have to, on the one hand, I, I wanted to publish these results to encourage Christian men who are hmm. doing a good job. You know, the church needs to stop scolding them on Father's Day, like you just mentioned. Hmm. Um, one of my uh, students, my grad students was a women's ministry leader at a large Baptist church here in Houston. And she said, on Mother's Day, we hand out flowers and tell mothers they're wonderful. On Father's Day, we scold men and tell them to do better. <laughs> so that is a common pattern. And, yeah. and, and I want to break that pattern. I want people yeah. to be able to say, look, that's not true. This, And it's not just a pep talk from your pastor. This is solid empirical research. You know, this yeah. is empirical data. And, so, and that's what I that's what I love yeah. about the book. And and we're gonna I want to dive in and kind of double click on several of those key ideas that you mentioned. I think that's a great overview of that because what I love about your work is it's so well documented and well researched and well thought out and well structured so that people can can find their way through it. And and I want it because it's so important, right? Because if you want to call men to something, we need to say, okay, well, there's a problem, and you're identifying the problem. I wanted to find that in just a second. But also know in your introduction, you shared, yes, you have an academic concern. There's a there's a sociological, the truth things to get out. But also know this is a personal issue for you, that there's there's part of your story that's involved in this that might be encouraging or helpful for people to understand, even as you set out to write a book like this, that people might uh, benefit from hearing. Would you mind sharing just a little bit of that connection as well? 
Yes, yes. Um, it is the first time I've told my personal story publicly. Um, but I did grow up in a very abusive home. Mm. My father was severely physically abusive. In books on abuse, they will sometimes ask, was it open hand or closed fist? Mm. And it was closed fist. Mm. Uh, and he would say, no, he he wouldn't say, do this, I'll spank you. He'd say, do this, I'll beat you. I mean, he was quite open mm. about it. And so I I have had to go through a lot of emotional and psychological and spiritual healing mm. over the years. And and as part of my story, it's because um, it it started when I went to Labrie. Um, I, you may know my history because I became a Christian at Labrie, which is the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. So I'd been raised in a Christian home, but I had left it in high school. And I had gone through several years as an agnostic. But I, I was in Europe. I, we lived in Europe when I was a child, and so I'd gone back. And that's how I kind of stumbled across the ministry of Francis Schaeffer, which is in Switzerland. And that, that was the first place I encountered Christian apologetics. I, mean, I had no idea that Christianity could be supported by good reasons and arguments and evidence. And I'd never met Christians who could engage with the secular philosophies that I had absorbed by that time. I mean, when I gave up my childhood faith, I realized very quickly, if there's no God, there's, there's no foundation for ethics, right? It's just true for me, true for you. There's no purpose of meaning to life. You know, they've thrown up by chance processes on a rock flying, flying through space. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not even a foundation for knowledge because the way I thought about it was if all I have is my puny brain and the vast scope of time and space, what makes me think I could have some sort of universal objective truth? Ridiculous. That's how I thought about it as a 16-year-old. As a <laughs> and even my science classes taught me that humans are just complex biochemical machines anyway. And so I was a determinist as well. So by the time I arrived at Labrie, I had pretty much absorbed relativism, skepticism, determinism. And they were these were the first people, I first Christians I ever met who could deal with these isms. But the part of that story that I had not ever told before is that on staff at Labrie was also a psychiatric social worker. Mm. And she agreed to be on staff because she realized that for many people, their objections to Christianity are not just intellectual, although those are very important. You know, we're whole beings, so God's truth applies to our mind. But for many people, it's also emotional, especially pastors' kids and missionary kids. She was a missionary kid. Hmm. Um, but uh, her name was Sheila Bird, and we nicknamed her Birdie. So it was Birdie who helped me to realize that I needed to get healing for my childhood trauma. Hmm. I had tried to leave it behind. When I left home, I thought, I'm going to totally wipe out my whole past history, you know, start with a blank slate and recreate myself from scratch, you know, create a life that I want because, you know, hmm. my childhood was so awful. I just wanted to walk away from it. And Birdie helped me to see, well, actually, you can't do that. <laughs> You really do have to work through that trauma. And it was Bertie who helped me to get started on, on a spiritual healing where I could experience God's love so deeply, so profoundly that it had that healing effect. You know, I mean, love heals. You know, it's kind yeah. of hard to explain, yeah. but it does. You know, when somebody loves you, that is very emotionally healing. And so just working through to a very intense genuine experience of god's love is is the key 
to emotional healing. Yeah, and I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you for having the, the courage to share that. I'm so grateful that Birdie was there, right? I mean, we need so many, you know, all, you know, I think about Faith Stern, we at Impact 360, we get to work with a lot of students, a lot of Gen Z students, a lot of teenagers who are hurting and questioning. And and part of it's, yeah, you need reasons why. And you also need somebody to come alongside, maybe give you a hug or just tell you, you know what, it's going to be all right. And they'll listen. And I mean, it's just, and just, the love of God, the love of Christ, and all of those things coming together. Um, it's a beautiful thing. So thank you for sharing that. I know that there's people watching or listening who might be able to relate to that in some form or fashion. But I also thought it's important because it's important for people to know that your research is not, it's still true, regardless, but it's not just academic, you know, and so and so it, it's both. It's both in, in those regards for you. Yeah. I was talking to a Christian psychologist and he said. Uh, here's how he put it. Um, it shows that you're not just writing from an ivory tower. Hmm. You know, this is not just abstract knowledge, but you were in the trenches. <laughs> you were in the trenches fighting this out. And it gives it an authenticity that you wouldn't have without that experience. So, so, yeah. so I agree with you. I, I think um, <laughs> what's funny is he started out by saying, when I first read your story, I thought, oh, no, <laughs> this is going <laughs> to be an angry book. You know. Hmm. She's been abused by her father. Now she's mad at men. And then, of course, as he got into it, he said, it's not angry at all. I mean, it's very hmm. male supportive. You know, it's it's very positive in his view of masculinity. So he said, you know, as a, I, I'm glad to hear this from, my, from a psychologist, um, you know, who's got experience in this field. He said it was very clear that you've gone through a lot of emotional healing and have come out the other end. Yeah, and that's so important and so good. I mean, I... You know, one of the one of the questions that students do, and they'll they'll ask us questions. Well, what do we do with church hurt and things like that, or something going on? And part of that is is wrecking. You know, there's this there's this paradox. I think for many people, there's some people experience some of their greatest pain sometimes associated with Christians or the church, but it's also the only place you're going to find healing and love as well, right? Is that I mean, maybe speak to that a little bit, or even highlight that. Is that what you? kind of would see as well in that process of kind of those things kind of coming together? Well, I, uh, yes, because, um, you know, I did have a Christian background. I, I was raised Lutheran. My parents are Scandinavian. My dad's Swedish. My mom's Norwegian. So I don't know if you know this, but all Scandinavians are Lutheran in the way that all Irish are Catholic. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's very much of an ethnic background. And and the problem with ethnic backgrounds is it's, they often rely on the ethnicity to hold their children more than you know real christian conviction like when i started asking questions my dad's response was essentially well we're, we're swedish what else are you going to be you know <laughs> he just couldn't fathom you know honest intellectual questions because the and the only question i was asking again this was when i was in high school was how do we know it's true you know i'm attending a public high school all my books are secular all my teachers are secular and i just started asking how do we know christianity is true and then when I was at Labrie and I was getting answers to my questions, um, and, and I really appreciate that because it, no other place had treated my questions seriously. You know, before that, if I asked questions about Christianity, the, I always got an answer of, that suggested, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Why don't mm. you just have faith? <laughs> yeah. And maybe you have an underlying moral issue which I didn't. I mean, honestly, I, I didn't. I just mm -hmm. really had the intellectual curiosity because nobody had ever made the case. 
right. why Christianity was true over against all of the secularism that I was surrounded with. Uh, and as soon as I heard a decent case, I thought, well, that makes sense. <laughs> um, but I did, as my intellectual questions were answered when I was at Liberty, that's when I finally, that was sort of the top layer, right? Then I got down to the second layer and I realized, oh, I actually do have a lot of emotional barriers as well. I mm. do not want to be like my parents. You know, mm. that was it. I finally realized that as my questions were being answered and as I was beginning to see that Christianity did have answers, could hold its own in the intellectual marketplace of ideas, then was when I first started recognizing I also do not want this to be true. <laughs> I do not want Christianity to be true because I want nothing. My, my, mm. I want my life to be nothing like my parents. And that, so, yes, I had to overcome that barrier. So it wasn't so much the church and for me, it was, but it was my Christian parents. If, I, like, if this is what Christianity is, I want nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, through Libri, I saw an alternative. I said, oh, yeah. there's a different kind of Christianity. You don't have to be like your parents to be a Christian. Yeah. And fortunately for so many people in, in that we get to benefit from kind of your learning and insights and in, in the story that God's written in your life, which is a beautiful thing. So thanks so much for, for sharing that with us. I know that's encouraging to people. Well, I know I want to dive into some of the particulars, but one of the distinctions I love in, in your book, um, the toxic, toxic war on masculinity early on, and maybe kind of share the background is maybe the distinction between a, a good man and a real man and how that kind of like where that kind of came from and why that's maybe an important even starting point before we get to some of the Christian stuff and the, all that. But What's what was that distinction and why was that an important discovery in the in in the research for you? Yeah, it was important. And I'll give you some of the background that, you know, you get the background that's not necessarily in the book. Um, but it has proven to be the most controversial book I've written. Hmm. And that surprised me wow. because my earlier book, Love Thy Body, dealt with issues like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, which is very much the cutting edge issue today. People keep telling me your book is more relevant now than when it was published. Hmm. But this book actually has been proved to be more controversial. So I, I taught it in my classes and I led reading groups to get lots of feedback. And they would tell their family and friends about it. And invariably, the first question was, whose side is she on? Hmm. With that tone, you know, wow. whose side is she on? And the assumptions seem to be, you know, either you've got to be a male bashing feminist or you're an angry reactionary. And so I found that this, this study um, on the real man versus the good man, I put it right at the beginning because it kind of disarms that. It says you don't have to be wholesale for or against. You can be nuanced here. Um, and, he, and here's the study. It, it was done by a sociologist who's not a Christian, uh, but he's well known. And so he gets invited to speak all around the world. So he came up with this very clever experiment where he asks young men two questions. He starts with, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, someone says he was a good man. What does that mean? Hmm. Young men all around the world had no trouble answering that. They would say things like honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, be a provider, be a protector, be responsible, stand up for the little, little guy. <laughs> I like that one. Yep. But he, but this researcher says, 
you know, all the way from what, Brazil to Sweden to Australia, you get the same answer. So men everywhere, universally, mm. we're made in God's image. And men do have an innate sense of what it means to be a good man. But then he would ask a follow-up question. Okay, what does it mean if I say man up, be a real man? Mm. And the young man would say, no, 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 that's completely different. That means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, um, win at all costs, play through pain, be competitive, get rich, get laid. I'm using mm. their language there. Right. Um, and so what this sociologist concludes is that there, there are these two scripts out there that men are made in God's image. They innately know universally um, what the good man is. And by the way, he asks them, where'd you learn that? Hmm. And they'll say, well, it's just in the air we breathe. But in Western countries, they would say it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. But in cultures around the world, they also feel pressure to be the the, the real man, which, of course, in, involves traits that some of us may see as toxic. And certainly when disconnected from the moral ideal of the good man can slide into traits like entitlement, dominance, control, and so on. And so what, what I... Uh, uh, what I say from this, um, what I conclude here is that it gives us a better strategy for dealing with these issues. When we deal with, when we deal with men, they do not respond well to being called toxic, right? Nobody. Imagine does. that. <laughs> <laughs> so I would suggest a better approach is: can we tap into their inherent innate knowledge of what it means to be the good man, uh, make an alliance with the good man part of him? And support and encourage and affirm that innate knowledge. And so this gives us a much more positive way to approach these issues. Yeah, for sure. And so I love that because that kind of I think when I when I first came across that I was like that resonated. That was that was something that, yeah, I think guys especially go, yeah, I, I think that's a clear distinction. And one you can call one to other, we'll call one to one and not the other in terms of kind of what that looks like. But I want to come back to some of the research and we kind of, we gave a good flyover at the beginning, but I want to kind of zero in on one aspect of it, um, which was this idea that it was surprising once you dug into the actual research. And I, from what I understand, and and your books are always well-researched and I always follow the footnotes, but you know, you, you had to do some digging, right. To find this stuff. This wasn't like on front page of, you know, a, a Google search, I imagine. Um, and that kind of thing, but just kind of speak to, again, the surprising nature. And then I want to come back to the distinction between kind of the nominal and the, and maybe the, the Christian man in just a minute, but just in general, what were some of the, the findings again, in terms of kind of the question about is manhood inherently toxic and, and, and how does that play out in the research? Because again, tell a little bit more of, of that part of the story. Yeah, well, it, it is certainly one of the reasons I wrote the book that uh, I was I was stunned by how socially acceptable it has become to attack masculinity, to express hostility. So uh, uh, one of the articles that caught my eye was a Washington Post article that was titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? I thought, really? In a respected mainstream publication, a Huffington Post editor tweeted, 
hashtag kill all men. Oh, wow. You can buy t-shirts that say so many men, so little ammunition. Wow. <laughs> and, and there are books out with titles like I hate men and no good men and are men necessary. And even some men have gotten on the bandwagon. There's a male author who wrote a book saying, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. Hmm. And then this one, you may have seen, it's not in the book because it was more recent, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the director of the movie Avatar, James Cameron, was quoted saying, testosterone is a toxin that you have to work out of your system. So wow. no wonder if... There is a there is a study that, that is in the book um, where 46% of American men said these days society seems to punish men just for acting like men. And whether you agree or not, that's a lot of people who do think that society is now hostile to masculinity. I quote a psychotherapist who writes regularly for the Wall Street Journal, and she said, coming into my practice, more and more young men coming feeling demoralized depressed and defeated because they feel like they're growing up in, in a culture that's hostile to masculinity and even at a christian university so i told my class i'm writing a book on masculinity and one of my male students shot back what masculinity it's been beaten out of us wow <laughs> oh um so so this was the yeah this is what drew, drew my attention to the topic originally mm -hmm. um and uh, and and you're right. Then then when I started researching the, like you said, I had to dig into the sociological literature. This is not the front page. Um, and I, I, I quote what about a dozen different studies. So so it's not just one study. Mm -hmm. But my 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 go to my go to sociologist, so to speak, the one who did the largest study, is Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. And and let me just give you a, a quote or two of his because sometimes yes. A quote just really crystallizes it. Um, to give you an idea of his stature, he writes for places like the New York Times. So this is an article in the New York Times. Hmm. And he says, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. And by the way, they, they often report on the wives because the assumption, of course, is that Christian men are going to be these tyrannical, oppressive, overbearing patriarchs. But in fact, the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 30, fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. And then what's fun is he turns to his um, colleagues, you know, his fellow acad academics who are mostly secular. By the way, uh, people have told me I should say this. Wilcox himself is not an evangelical, hmm. you know, because people sometimes think, oh, yeah, you're rooting for your own team, right? <laughs> no, he's Catholic. So I, I don't think he necessarily wanted to find out that evangelicals top the charts, you know, in terms of being the best husbands and fathers. He's just telling you what he found. Mm -hmm. And then he turns to his fellow academics. And, and listen, this is my favorite quote, actually. He says, academics need to cast aside their prejudices against religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. Conservative, Protestant, married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. So again, the bottom line is Christians 
do have a very practical answer to reconciling the sexes, to use my subtitle. Yeah. And it's one that we should be bold about bringing into the public square because it has stood up to rigorous, rigorous empirical testing. You know, it's, it's evidence-based. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it's, uh, I, I think a lot of people think we're, Christians are only faith-based, which they treat as, you know, your personal private experience. No, this mm-hmm. is evidence-based research showing that evangelical men top the charts. Yeah, and from what you would see in the news or headlines or books or songs or shows, that is not at all what you would expect because it'd be like the you would expect that it would be the worst of all people on the planet when it came when it comes to marriage or relationships would be quote unquote conservative um, men, conservative evangelical men who hold certain theological views, maybe about the home or the family or even even those kind of things. And that is just not what you found, right? And so that's I just want to make that really clear for everybody listening. Yes, and what I found, so some people tried to pull my book into the complementarian versus egalitarian debate, which I don't get into because that's not what the sociologists were studying. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm basing this on the research. Right. And what they studied were evangelicals. Um, and in fact, the only time they touch on the debate between complementarian and egalitarianism is to say it doesn't seem to matter in practice. This was amazing. Mm-hmm. Wilcox, uh, Brad Wilcox again at, at UVA, uh, studied uh, both both um, complementarians and showed that they're not necessarily overbearing abusive patriarchs, you know, to, to, to counter the stereotypes. But he also studied egalitarian marriages and found they're not happier. They do not test out as happier. You might expect they would. <laughs> Um, you know, the, the argument sounds like it would, you know, treating each other equally, but it, they did the research and it doesn't show up as they don't show up as happy. And the other word, person I quote is John Gottman. John Gottman's not a Christian, but he's considered the top marriage psychologist, not sociologist, psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's done the most empirical research on marriage. And what he does is he he brings couples into this, what he calls his love lab. It's kind of like a bed <laughs> and breakfast. And they stay there for up to 72 hours and they get wired up so that he tests their heart rate and their breathing rate and their, their stress hormones and their, their sweating. And then he, he has complex codes for gestures like rolling your eyes and, and all the words they use. I mean, he's a, he was a mathematician before he became a psychologist. Wow. <laughs> and he takes all this data and he analyzes it. And he's famous for being able to uh, predict with 93 points. 93.6 accuracy. You see that he's a mathematician. Yeah. He's able to predict with 93.6 accuracy which couples will divorce mm. with within about 15 minutes of observing them. It's amazing. That's what that's what made him famous. <laughs> wow. So he says, but here's what he says: I have couples in my practice who believe in a form of headship. That, you know, the man should be the leader in the relationship. And I've had egalitarian couples. He says, it doesn't make a difference. There isn't. Their gender theory does not make a difference. She said, and here's how he puts it. Emotionally intelligent husbands have figured out the most important thing, which is how to show honor and respect. And you can show honor and respect no matter what gender theory you hold. So that's fascinating. That's mm-hmm. why I don't get, once I read that, <laughs> that was another reason not even to get into that debate. First of all, yeah. they, weren't pri- they were not primarily the people being researched. And secondly, 
in practice, it doesn't seem to make much difference. In fact, the whole the whole third third chapter of my book, um, I go through the surveys of evangelical couples where they speak mm -hmm. in their own words. So they, yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, so this was fun because I didn't want to just you know do a theological debate and uh, find out what the theological leaders say. I wanted to know what real people say, ordinary Christians. And so I, I, and again, I was blown away. I didn't expect it to be so positive. I really didn't. I, maybe my background, you know, um, but I did not expect evangelical couples to uh, test out in expressing the idea of Ephesians 5 headship in such loving, warm, caring language. They did not talk about uh, um, final decision maker or final authority so much as spiritual leadership, which they then defined in terms of being responsible for the spiritual well-being of your family, of your wife and children. So it, the, the, their own words, you know, I let them speak in their own words in that chapter. And mm -hmm. it was amazing to me to see, again, how loving, warm and respectful Christian couples were. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think it's important. I know one of the things was, you know, Ephesians 5 talks about husbands love your wives as what? Christ loved the church. And, and I think that's the model. But I think one thing that's so important about it is I know there's a narrative out there that somehow the theology of whether that's a complementarian view or just even headship or just the spiritual leadership, whichever term we want to use, necessarily leads to harm or necessarily leads to abuse. And I think the research shows that that's just simply not, not the case. And so I think it here, and you can comment more on it in a second, is, is maybe the distinction you brought in, because if I'm understanding you correctly from your research, you're saying that um, those evangelicals or practicing Christians who actually practice that, not just identify in name only, which we'll talk about in a minute, but they actually um, practice these things, um, they have better marriages, better relationships. They have more satisfaction in marriage. All of those things um, higher than the average. Is that is that the basically a good summary of kind of what you found? Uh, yes, um, and significantly higher than the average. Um, you know, when when Brad Wilcox, you know, that New York Times article piece that I uh, that I just quoted. It was in a response that to a, a progressive writer had written in, it was for Valentine's Day. And so progressive writer had written in saying, progressive marriages are the happiest. And so he wrote a response and he said, well, and yes, progressive marriages are happier than, than the average run of the mill because they are trying to be more intentional. And then he said, but let me show you my evangelicals. <laughs> you know, it's a J curve. The, wow. the evangelicals test out higher than even the highest of the secular progressives. So I, I, it's it's something that we could really um, focus on and, like I said, bring it into our churches and bring it out into the public arena to to, to shatter the the media narratives. You know, the media stereotypes are just wrong, and it'd mm -hmm. be wonderful to see Christians being able to get out there into the public and you know with this evidence. And be able to show that the media narratives are completely mistaken. Yeah, and to be able to call young men and our sons to that, and to go, hey, look, this, there's a whole bunch that that that's wrong out there. We live in a fallen world, sure, granted, but when you follow God's design, when you follow God's word, when you follow who He made you to be as a man, 
that leads to good things in marriage and good things in relationships. And like, that's a whole different way of like, that's, that's encouraging and empowering. Right. And that's the message I think we need to get out. Yeah. And and another interesting aspect is he found that evangelicals who are in these good marriages are also more likely to reach out to the community. They're much more Hmm. likely to be involved in uh, both in, in their church, in the ministries, and uh, in, in doing community service of various kinds, being involved in, in charitable activities, they're much more likely to be, uh, oh, and uh, I have an example from one of my students who uh, coached, coached his son's lacrosse team. And he said, I'm not just doing this for my kids. I'm doing it because I'm reaching out to these young boys. Many of them don't have an active father at home. And so that's an example where Christians, evangelical Christians who have good marriages are also much more likely to be reaching out into the community. I thought that was a great, a, yeah. a, a great finding as well. That's a great insight. So now let's contrast that with the nominal or in name only quote unquote evangelicals and, and talk about the rates and differences. Cause in some ways they kind of give a bad name to the rest of us who are trying like, so, so make that contrast really clear in terms of how that data played itself out. Yeah. That's how I sometimes put it myself. I say, you know, they're ruining the rep, they're ruining the reputation of all evangelical men. Now, uh, the one thing I do need to emphasize is that they, the numbers are about the same. And that was a bit of a surprise to me because, you know, you and I probably hang out mostly with fairly committed Christians. And so I thought the nominals would be a small group. But here in America, at least, there's a lot of nominals. You know, we have a lot of cultural Christianity, mm-hmm. um, it, probably in America more than any other place. And so the only concrete number I got on it was that they're about the equal size. They're both about the same size. So what that means, if you run into somebody who claims to be evangelical, you know, claiming that label, uh, there's about a 50-50 chance that they're actually nominal. So that's, a, that's important to know that um, not only are they out there, but they're about the same number. And that's why it's so easy for people to have the wrong impression about Christians because they probably have run into nominals like that. And I have, I've gotten some people asking me, well, why are they actually worse than secular yeah. men? And uh, it, apparently it's because, well, the, first of all, they're taking terms like headship and submission and not giving them the biblical meaning. Right? They're not hanging around the church enough to get the biblical meaning. And so what they're doing is they're infusing secular meaning. They're infusing meanings from the secular script for masculinity of dominance and entitlement and uh, c- control and so on. Um, but here's the difference. They're putting a Christian veneer over the top, which makes them feel as if they're religiously justified in mm. being that way. It's, it's, the secular man doesn't have that added justification, but a nominal Christian feels like, well, the church is giving me permission to, talk, to act like this. And so it, as a result, they end up living actually worse than secular men. So that's, that was kind of a shocker to find out that people who kind of pay, pay lip service to Christianity and, and adopt the evangelical label uh, are actually worse than secular men. They are taking their definition from the secular world, but then they're living it out uh, at an even more extreme level. Yeah, and that's important to point out because then you've got, it's important to dive into the particulars because some people would say, well, then all evangelicals are in that same bucket and that's just not the case. Um, But 
there's a good reason for because a lot of them have just kind of slapped religious language on top of the secular script for masculinity as you talk about it. So let's talk about that a little bit. Maybe talk about what that script is for toxic masculinity and maybe where it came from, even historically and sociologically. I know you've done a lot of research on that because kind of where did that where did that kind of come from and kind of how do we begin to see that emerging in history? Yeah, to stand against a social trend, you kind of have to know where it came from, how it developed. And m most people think the idea of toxic masculinity maybe came out of the 1960s, second wave feminism. Um, but no, it actually goes much further back. You have to go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, men worked side by side with their wives and children all day. And so they had to be gentle and patient. Um, uh, the uh, prevailing ethos or cultural expectation on men was very much a caretaking ethos, you know, responsibility for the common good of your household. The household was, remember, um, you've got the family farm or the family industry, the family business. And so the fa family was seen as kind of a small commonwealth. And in fact, the, the very meaning of authority had a very, a, a very specific meaning back then. I mean, today we kind of have a negative view of authority, a lot of us, as you know, somebody thinks he can do whatever he wants. But back then, they defined it very carefully as the person who has responsibility for the common good. Mm. In other words, I look out for what's good for me, you look out for what's good for you, but who looks out for the common good of the marriage, or the common good of the family, or the school, the church, civil society? A person in authority was supposed to be disinterested that was their favorite term meaning he's not supposed to look out for his own interest he is supposed to look out for the interest, interest of the whole and so people today tell me well if that was our definition of authority you know that wouldn't be so bad but but how did we the question then is how did we lose it the industrial revolution took work out of the home and of course men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices and for the first time they were not working alongside the family, people they loved and had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And that's when you see the language start to change. People start to protest that in that commercialized environment, men were becoming competitive, self-interested, greedy, aggressive, you know, look out for number one, get ahead at all costs. This is the language people started using. For the first time, the male character was being defined in negative terms. And, and people were protesting and they were saying they didn't like it. You know, they said men are losing that wonderful caretaking ethos that they'd had in the colonial period. And so that's when it started. The negative interpretation of the masculine character really has its roots. Now, in my book, The Toxic War and Masculinity, I go through several stages because you know it took it took a while. Mm -hmm. um, but this is where it started. And of course, you you can't kind of leave people hanging. You, you, I then had to have a chapter on what do we do about it. Yeah, for sure. We can't undo the uh, Industrial Revolution, but I do have a whole chapter on practical ways that we might be able to flex the workplace even today. In surveys, men still say that the main obstacle to being good fathers is, is work, the, the structure of work. And the pandemic, by the way, made it much more acceptable for men to want to work from home and be more involved with their families. 65% uh, of fathers in one survey said after the pandemic, they did not want to go back to the office full time. You know, 
maybe two days a week at home, you know, or some flex time, some telecommuting. Um, the New York Times had a wonderful article, and the title was, During the Pandemic, Fathers Got Closer to Their Children, and They Don't Want to Lose That. Hmm. And I love that. So, so I have lots of stories, lots of anecdotes of people who found mm -hmm. ways to flex their work. And, and I also, the, the other side, of, of course, is that we have to convince corporations that this is good. And so I quote CEOs who say things like, you know, we we didn't we never let people work from home before because we you know we thought they would slough off, productivity would go would go down. And they said those fears were completely exploded during the pandemic. They productivity did not go down. In fact, in fact, I quote some people some CEOs saying things like, "You give people time to be better parents, they make better workers. You know, they actually do a better job." And so I'll just give you, um, I'll give you one example. My favorite example is one of my students, one of my grad students um, was married to an IT professional who came home during the pandemic. And he said, not, being home meant I could be more involved with homeschooling. I, deci I decided I would be the one to make lunch every day. I could take my kids to soccer and choir practice. <laughs> and he picked up so many of the family responsibilities that his wife was able to start a part-time business. Uh, she's an opera singer. I had a hmm. student who was an opera singer, and she started a voice studio. And the whole family benefited from the added income. So when I when I interviewed the husband, he said, I'm never going back to a cubicle. Our family life is so much more balanced now. And uh, the final, final kicker was, he said, uh, the time that I used to spend commuting to work I now spend praying with my wife every morning. So I give lots of anecdotes like that just to give people ideas about, you know, can we find ways for fathers to reconnect, especially with their sons? You know, because it's the father-son relationship. That's the long-term solution to toxic behavior in men is, a, is the father-son relationship. I cite one psychiatrist who said, we're not going to have a better class of uh, men until we have a better class of fathers. Because it's that father-son relationship that is key in helping boys to have a healthy um, and positive and godly masculinity. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really important insights. I mean, I think there's so much that's working to undermine not just masculinity, and it's another podcast for another day with all the, the transgender ideology and just gender to begin with. Like, forget masculinity and femininity. There's no such thing as women or men. Like, like that's, a, you know, which I know you deal with and love thy body, and we talk about that in other places. But so, but you see, I mean, and just, you know, if I were the enemy trying to undermine the goodness of God's design, not only would you attack families, but you would also attack men in the process and, and all of those things that kind of come apart. Could you say a few words just briefly about um, just kind of the cultural uh, mandate and kind of how that plays into kind of a shared calling and and some of those kind of ways forward. I know that the mentoring, casting vision, encouraging, not just say, hey, your men are toxic and do better and, and all like, but how does the cultural mandate inform, maybe define real quickly what it is, if that's a new term for people, and then also how does that help maybe help us recover something and redeem something there? Yes, and I, I do come back to the cultural mandate many times in the book, and partly because in the late 19th century, uh, an idea arose that the way to recover your true masculinity 
you know, was to get away from family, to go out and, you know, live with the cowboys and sleep under the stars and rope cattle or become a mountaineer. And uh, the, the, the true man was a sort of solitary, disconnected, uh, out in nature um, that is exemplified by the literature of the time, like, like Westerns. The most, one of the most famous early Westerns was Shane. And Shane features, you know, the, the, the hero is not the farmer who's raising crops, faithful to his wife, raising his son. No, the hero is the gunman who rides in, stays long enough to shoot up the bad guys and rides out again. You know, solitary, uncommitted, um, as the, the um, introduction puts it, comes from nowhere and goes to nowhere. Hmm. So <laughs> that's kind of the idea that is even in some Christian circles now, you know, you find your true manhood by getting away, out climbing, climbing mountains and hunting elk or whatever. And so I keep coming back to, no, no, the cultural mandate is a term that people have given to the early chapters, well, Genesis 1. God has created the universe, the physical universe. He's created the plants and animals, and then he creates the first humans. And what's the first thing he says to them? He tells them why he created them. You know, here's your job is be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And in the highly streamlined language of Genesis 1, you can unpack a lot of uh, meanings from that. So be fruitful does not just mean, you know, have kids. But the family historically is the foundation for all of the social institutions. You know, it becomes the extended family, the clan, the tribe, the village, the, the state, the, the, the nation. Uh, and also social institutions form for specific purposes, right? So you, the village needs a school, a church, uh, some kind of state. Um, so that be fruitful really means develop the entire social world, all of the social institutions. And along with that would be like the laws and treaties and constitutions that govern these groups. Subdue the earth means harness the natural resources. So of course, most cultures start out with agriculture but it means mining, it means you know, building bridges and buildings, it means inventing computers and technology, it means composing music. I had a student who once said, oh, come on, composing music? And I said, I play the violin. What's the violin made out of? Wood. What's the bow made out of? Horsehair. So all of the transcendent beauty that we associate with music starts with harnessing the raw materials of nature. So this is sometimes called the cultural mandate because what it means is men do not find their true manhood by riding off into the sunset like a lone ranger. Men find their true masculinity by rolling up, rolling up their sleeves and getting involved deeply with their families, their community, and in creative and productive work. And this is pre-fall, right? The cultural mandate is pre-fall. So it holds for all time. It means that this is our inherent nature. This is what we were inherently meant to do, is to make cultures, to create civilizations, you know, to make history. So you're right, about half my students have never heard the term cultural mandate. And so I come back to it frequently in this book on masculinity, because I think um, it's a really good counter to some of the secular definitions of masculinity. Yeah, I think that's really important. So thanks for that helpful, um, just unpacking that language. You know, we'd be remiss if we didn't hit on one important point. You know, our culture thinks, you know, the secular script 
as if it's better without Christianity. Could you just speak briefly about how even Darwinism and some of those ideas actually gave us this script that we have that everybody doesn't like and reacts against and thinks like, can you kind of connect some dots there? Yeah, so glad you asked that because uh, that's one of the most important turning points. And most people don't think of Darwin in connection with masculinity. You know, they think of genes and fossils or whatever. But Darwinian thinkers argued explicitly that the men who won out, you know, rose to the top in the struggle for survival would by necessity be rugged, ruthless, brutal, savage, barbarian, and even predatory. And so they began to say, well, this is, this is true masculinity. This is your true nature under a thin veneer of civilization. That was one of their favorite phrases. Under a thin veneer of civilization, you really are a beast at heart. And this is, for example, when the Tarzan books were written and became popular. And by the way, the author was explicitly trying to uh, convey a Darwinian worldview. So the, the man who's raised by apes retains that inner wildness, right? It, even after he um, learns European customs and languages. At the end of the book, he turns to Jane and says, I'm still a wild beast at heart. So that was the message of evolution is that men are still wild beasts at heart. And there, were, there was more serious literature as well. There was a whole genre called literary naturalism. And these were authors, again, who were using their fiction to convey a naturalistic Darwinian worldview. So the best known is Jack London, who wrote books like Call of the Wild. And what most people don't realize you know, when they read that book in high school is that as a young man, Jack London read books on Darwinism and had what one historian calls a conversion experience to radical naturalism, materialism. Mm -hmm. And so his books, they featured dogs, right? But they were metaphors for humans. And his whole point was that they're products of natural selection and genes and environment, they have no real free will. They're human animals, nothing more. So this was the message it appeared to be of evolution is that Christianity had urged men to live up to, live, to the image of God in them. And Darwin, Darwinian thinkers said, no, no, you live down to your animal nature, that that's your true self. And, and incidentally, Darwin himself also did argue that women are intellectually inferior to men. Um, and uh, he said he, he was willing to admit that women are more sensitive and intuitive, but then he said, but those are traits of the lower species. So even mm -hmm. women's strengths were sign of the, signs of their inferiority. And Thomas Huxley, who you know, had the moniker Darwin's bulldog, said that because women's intellectual inferiority is a product of natural selection, it will not be even solved by a process of educational selection. In other words, we can't give her enough education to overcome wow. her inferiority. Oh, and then one final uh, wrinkle here is you ask, well, if men are inherently these brutal beasts, how, how do women get along with them? And there was one evolutionary thinker who answered this, Herbert Spencer, who was the most influential popularizer of Darwinism here in America. He answered this question, he said, well, to get along with such brutal domineering men, it, women needed to learn the ability to please. These are his words. And it, was all, it would also help, he said, if they learned to hide their resentment at such poor treatment. So the message of evolution apparently was that at heart, men are brutal beasts and women need to learn how to please and placate them. So 
in my mind, this was an extremely significant step mm. in the development of a very secular script for masculinity. Yeah, and that's and that's really important because secularism is not neutral. It's not a neutral starting point. People are like, oh, it's secular is a new no, it is not. Secularism is a world, it's is not worldview neutral. There are assumptions baked in. And so just I want to summarize a few things and I'll kind of wrap up with a couple of points. You know, the surprising research has shown that it turns out the problem of toxic masculinity that you've kind of highlighted in your book is best solved by the Judeo-Christian worldview and Christian um, manhood and marriage and people made in the image of God. And that's what the research is showing, um, that there's two competing scripts that have developed um, between kind of that good man idea and that, and that real man idea, the real man being the secular, but the secular is not neutral. And then our culture reacts against the negative stuff that flows from the secular view, but then attaches it to the Christians. And then you highlight that with the research of nominal Christians who are just playing Christian or basically slapping the religious title on top of basically a secular view of manhood. Is that a fair kind of summary? Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, and I think the, the point that you hit on, that I think is really important is when people protest that masculinity is toxic or that it, you know, covers, it includes a lot of traits that are toxic or harmful or dangerous. They are talking about the secular script. And, and one reason I spend a lot of time explaining where the secular script came from and how it developed is because secular ideas inevitably seep into the church, not just through the nominals, um, though largely it's through nominal Christians because of course they don't have a Christian worldview anyway. But I think it seeps into the church because it's just part of the culture that we live in. And so if you're going to have a critical grid in place, we too need to understand the secular script so that we can understand, oh, you know, I'm seeing these messages out there, but that's not biblical. And, and so even though, um, you know, I'm an, I'm an apologist at heart, right? <laughs> I, love mm -hmm. to, I love to analyze secular culture and worldviews. And so I do spend a lot of time analyzing the secular script for masculinity. But the take home point is we're all influenced by it. It does seep into the church and it's it's something that, you know, it gives us a better ability. I, I had to read a lot of Christian books on masculinity right, in my research. And I felt like a lot of them were not critical thinkers. They were sometimes taking secular views, even even, you know, sincere Christians would sometimes take a secular view, view and sort of Christianize it. And we have to have our own critical grid in place. And knowing the secular script will help us also to be, know what to stand against and how to make sure mm -hmm. our own thinking is more biblical. Yeah, no, that's super helpful. And so maybe I wanted to ask you this question. As you've done any research, I know you've done a lot of thinking about it. Um, how would you, I guess, contrast or maybe highlight maybe distinctly um, masculine virtues, perhaps, versus distinctly feminine virtues are there. And then second would be, I know, like, for example, the Holy Spirit is trying to produce the same fruit in all of us, men and women, right? Spiritual gifts are for all of us, like that's all those things. But is, I guess, what are those things that, I guess, we would, it would be, do us well to dial up for masculinity to highlight say hey these are good virtues or qualities even physical traits or whatever or femininity like you know in a culture that tries to blend everything together and say it's all non-existent there's no categories there's no binary there's none of that maybe speak into that in terms of how to how to begin thinking about 
kind of some of those things that are unique to masculinity and unique to femininity than as we talk about being image bearers? Right. Now, to balance it, most personality traits overlap pretty closely. You know, let's start with where, you know, men and, men and women are more alike than they're different. You know, when Adam sees Eve, he doesn't say, oh, somebody different. He says, oh, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You know, he's excited because there's somebody like him. So it is important to start with, we all share a common human nature. And if you uh, make a bell curve for a particular trait, even, even aggression, the bell curve for men and the bell curve for women overlaps pretty closely. The differences are mostly at the, at the extreme, which is why most violent prisoners in jail are, um, are men. They're all at that extreme. Um, so it's good to start there. But I, and then I just start, like you said, with the physical. Let's start with the physical, because those are, you know, empirical facts. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's easier to avoid ideology if you start with the facts. And it is true that men are bigger, stronger, faster. They have more fast twitch muscles. That's a term I had to learn, <laughs> which means they can react more quickly. Uh, because of testosterone, they do tend to be more aggressive and risk-taking. And we have to affirm these things as good. These are clearly just the basic facts of how God made men. And we have to start by really affirming these. And this is why, by the way, in all cultures, men are the protectors and the providers. Let me give you a study on that. So there was an anthropologist who did the first ever cross-cultural analysis of concepts of masculinity. This is a couple of years ago, not a Christian. Um, and he found that he, no matter how they define masculinity, you know, some cultures more war, more warlike, some are more peaceful. No matter what the differences were, they all shared in common what he called the three Ps. The expectation that to be a man means you provide, you protect, and you procreate, meaning you become a father. You build into the next generation. And this is universal. You know, so this is inherent in what it means to be a man. And it, it's, it's, it shows up in a, you know, in a worldwide anthropological study like that. So I'm really, I think it's really important that we find ways to affirm these basic differences. And, and of course, the, for women, it's, um, it, it's what's unique to women, of course, is that they bear children. And so they have more estrogen, which is a bonding hormone, which makes them more in tune with their kids. And, and the reason a lot of people don't like focusing on differences is because every time you say there's a difference, someone ends up as being judged less than. Mm. Yeah. And through most of human history, men have been, most cultures, men have been judged superior because they're stronger, and women have been judged inferior. So it's very important that when we talk about the difference, that we talk about the, the distinctive feminine traits as strengths, not weaknesses. Yeah. You know, that their superpower that they have children and and have caring for an infant is incredibly demanding you know it's 24 7. it means that you have to have incredible patience and endurance to and and the ability to get up at 3 a.m in the morning and meet the child's distress if a child is distressed you don't you don't scold them you don't reason with them you meet their distress no matter what you wanted to do you know, you have to be able to drop what you're doing and, and attend to the child. And you also have to be very sensitive to threats in the environment, right? So you become a mama bear. So mm -hmm. it's very important to talk about these as strengths, you know, so mm -hmm. that when you talk about differences, you're not talking about one being inferior or superior. Because in the, in the book, I, have, I do have two chapters on abuse. If, if nominal 
evangelicals test out with the highest level of physical violence in the home I had to deal with that otherwise it would look yeah. like I was sweeping it under the carpet and True. the experts who deal with abuse say that abuse is not just somebody losing control abuse is driven by a belief system and here's what they all said I I, I quote just three experts but but is it, all of them say it's a belief system that males are superior males are superior is like the core of the belief that drives abuse so it's very important that we make sure that when we talk about the differences between men and women that we treat women's distinctives as positives as forms of strength now I have to Absolutely. tell you this though this was an interesting finding um I do have a chapter on fatherhood um because I, after all like I said the long-term solution to toxic behavior in men is getting fathers back involved with their kids uh, and America in America's 40 percent of children are growing up apart from their natural fathers mm. it is the highest rate of single parenthood in the world how's that for something to be the highest in mm. <laughs> and and everyone knows that especially boys growing up without fathers are much more vulnerable to various social pathologies you know dropping out of school getting involved in drug and alcohol addiction crime I, I used to work for prison fellowship which is an international prison ministry mm -hmm. and we knew we knew that most of these men behind bars especially the violent ones uh grew up in fatherless homes so I have a chapter on fatherhood but what I do is um I take a little bit different approach because it's very common like we said earlier for churches to say men do better like you know scolding wagging the finger at them so what I do is I feel the appeal to this self-interest I found some really fun research showing how men benefit from becoming fathers hmm. there's there's what psychologists call the, the the dad brain there are neurons in your brain that don't develop unless you become a father when you become a father you have to actually be actively holding your child it's stimulated by tactile sense um, but there's a whole nest of neurons that get activated when you become a father also your oxytocin goes up which means that's the bonding hormone so you're getting a chemical boost in terms of you know God's giving you a boost to become a, an involved and engaged father and here was the real surprise this is the most recent book as by an anthropologist who found that even during his wife's pregnancy a man's oxytocin is going up in other mm. words nobody thought to test a man's blood during his wife's pregnancy <laughs> you know nobody ever thought of that but what it means is that all through the pregnancy you know we've we've talked about if you read anthropologists they often say motherhood is natural fatherhood is a social construction it turns out that's not true men are also biochemically primed to be a full partner in the parenting team and now we know it starts even during his wife's pregnancy the oxytocin is rising in his blood so that he's ready when the baby is born to bond with that child and become an, a fully involved and engaged father. That's amazing design. I like, and just great research. Isn't that awesome? I mean, just, you know, it's that's that's so that's such cool 
insight. I'm so glad you, you documented that in the book. Now we'd be, I want to make sure that, you know, there's some listening, you know, the vast majority of people will probably find themselves in a marriage relationship or something like that, but talk about how to express those masculine and feminine virtues real quick. And if somebody's single or somebody's, you know, doesn't have children and isn't maybe able to express that or doesn't, you know, that's not their experience. I know they, they can, but speak to that briefly in terms of those dynamics as well. Yeah. So I, I do talk a little bit about that because I think I, I do think that single people should not feel like, well, um, you know, I'm just waiting around to get married. They should also be involved in, um, you know, fatherly type activities, you know, mentoring young people, coaching young people, becoming a teacher, working with your church youth group. You know, you can gain a lot of the benefits. I mean, I'm, I'm appealing to your self-interest, right? But you yourself gain a lot of benefits from those kind of warm, close mentoring relationships with children or with young people um, and, and women too. But I, since it's a book on men, I spoke mostly yeah. about men in this book. But it's fascinating um, that what I found in my research is that you do gain a lot of the you know, personal sense of fulfillment and validation of your masculinity, even in relationships where there's not a biological bond but where you're a mentor, you're a coach, you're a uh, church youth group leader. And, and of course, you also know how much good you're doing. Um, in, in my chapter on fatherhood, I do quote some statistics showing that father substitutes can have a huge impact. Um, you know, there are so many kids, like I said, 40% 40, 40 of American kids are growing up without their father. So there's a, a, a huge opening there for Christian ministries. In my book, I actually say churches need to make this a ministry, like a, a priority. You need to start having ministries to fatherless kids. That's mm -hmm. such a growing population, and there's so much at risk of, you know, of having difficulties in their life. And, and just be encouraged by knowing how much of a difference you can make. That's what the studies show. Like I said, the coach, the teacher, um, the big brother, can have a huge impact on the on a child's life. So definitely don't think of this as just for parents. You, you ha can have a parent-like role mm. in the life of, of children. And I already gave the example of the, the friend of mine who um, teaches, who coaches the lacrosse team. But what I loved about that when I interviewed him is he said, you know, coaching is a lot of work. <laughs> he, <laughs> He wasn't, you know, underplaying how much time and effort this took him, but he said, you know what? The payback is priceless because I am helping. He's helped a whole generations of young boys who mm. e either had no father or an uninvolved father. And, and that was his motivation is that he knew he was having an impact on these, on these boys. So, so that's what I would say is, is be encouraged that you can have a lot of the same impact as a father substitute. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so that's so good. And I, and as I just think about just your work, as we kind of kind of wrap up our discussion, just, you know, this idea of imagine how different it would feel for most men, if rather than feeling tolerated at best and ridiculed at worst, if they were, it was like, you know, it's good that you're a man, it's good that you can protect and provide. And in the in the in the God ordained context, procreate, right, have a family, and that's a good thing. And it's good to be strong and courageous and caring, right? Um, imagine not better. And that's where I think the Christian message of, of image bearers and co-heirs and all that stuff is so vital, but imagine the, the difference that would make of calling too, because 
I've been around a lot of environments and a lot of, a lot of times it's the guys are not called. It's, it's like they're tolerated. Right. And then, mm-hmm. and then just kind of, they're, they're out there. And again, there's so many corrective things that needed to happen in terms of women's rights. And, you know, there's so much, right. We're not saying, you know, obviously it's a whole nother podcast to talk about all the waves of feminism and which ones went well and which ones went poorly and all that. But the general, but one of the thing that's left in its wake in some ways is you've got a whole generation of young men who are purposeless and they're feeling left behind and they're feeling not, they're not entering college at the same rates. They're not pursuing education at the same, like maybe speak to that briefly and then we'll kind of, kind of wrap it up in a minute, but talk to that a little bit. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Of course I start the book with some of that because that lays out the problem that we need, need to address. And, And by the way, I just wanted to clarify one thing, you know, the three P's, the procreate, that's why I said, build into the next generation because you don't have to be a father to do that right that's why i said build into the next generation because you could do that in ways besides just being a biological father but um yeah boys are falling behind on all levels of education from kindergarten all the way through college most universities now are like 60 40 60 percent female 40 percent male and some of the top universities are quietly behind the scenes practicing reverse affirmative action trying to get more men our our school did we were 70 30 and Mm. so what did we do we start i'm at houston christian university we started a football team and then we started an engineering school (laughs) these were specifically to draw in more boys you know more male students um and graduate school too more women than men graduate from graduate school and even professional schools like law and medicine and then as adults, men are falling behind as well, but behind relative to women and also relative to where they used to be. There's more men who are committing suicide, addicted to drugs and alcohol, homeless. Um, and, and even um, the studies are showing that male unemployment now is at depression era levels. It's not showing up in the statistics because they're not even looking for work. So the researchers had to dig behind the statistics and they say male unemployment is at depression era levels. And then men's life expectancy has gone down just in recent years. Women's has stayed the same, so it's not a general trend. Only men's life expectancy has gone down. So a magazine called The New Scientist said the major demographic factor in early death now is being male. Wow. So I think it's time to have some compassion for men. I have have two sons, so, you know, I I really think about this a lot. Um, It's it's great. I I agree with you. It's great that women have moved ahead and that girls have moved moved ahead in education. Billions of dollars have been poured into equity education to create, you know, girl-affirming curriculum and programs and scholarships. There's four times as many scholarships for girls as for boys now. And that's all good because you... The thing that um, shocked me when I was researching this is you realize that girls were not even allowed, were not even allowed to attend university until the mid 20th century. I didn't realize it was that recent. So Mm. we have, I'm glad I wasn't born any earlier. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, So they've made great strides and we need to say, that's great. That's wonderful. But now it is time to say, can we maybe have some special programs that are geared towards boys? that it gives toward their specific personalities, their specific learning styles and encourage them because they are falling behind. 
And boy, books are coming out with with um, titles, titles like The Boy Crisis or The Trouble with Boys, or Why Boys Fail. And, and the irony here is, of course, we're not nurturing boys, and then we turn around and blame them for their toxic behavior. So I think it's time that we talked more about how can we nurture boys and how can we help them now to start succeeding in, in school and in life. No, I think that's, that's amazing. and so good and so important to me, you know, because society will flourish better. Um, marriages will flourish better. Families will flourish better. It's not, and I think the thing, it's not a zero sum game. If you celebrate one and encourage one, you have to not the other. It's like, imagine, just wait for it, that maybe it's good to be a man and it's good to be a woman. And we can talk about both of those good things and their strengths and their differences and a ways that those flourish and the Christian worldview, how it undergirds that and supports it. And I just think we need that more than ever. And this generation growing up with such confusion and just discouragement in a lot of these categories around gender, but especially young men, I think it's vital. So I'm, I mean, we could keep talking for hours, but this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, again, my guest today has been Nancy Piercy. Her book is The Toxic War on Masculinity. Such a helpful book. You can find out more about her at her website, nancypiercy.com. Brand new website there. looks awesome. There's lots of stuff uh, and everything else. But just any last words that you would just say is by word of encouragement, that anything else that you'd want to share um, as we look forward to maybe kind of calling men uh, and encouraging them kind of moving forward? Well, you're a good interviewer. So we've covered just about everything I can think of. Um, uh, so maybe I'll just repeat, <laughs> repeat that, um, uh, that my goal in the book was in particular to get out the information on how Christian men are doing well. And um, I have, to, like I said, to my own surprise, this book has been the most controversial one that I've ever written. And uh, since it's come out, I've gotten some pushback by um, some even some egalitarian thinkers hmm. who are angry that I didn't in, th that I did not in, even engage that discussion because um, I don't uh, like I said the 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 the, 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 the numbers show that yeah. it doesn't seem to really matter what matters is are you living out a Christian understanding of love and respect and honor and you can do that no matter what theology you hold so. Uh, just coming back to uh, the, uh, you know, uh, I'm an encourager. I like to encourage people. So I hope my book is an encouragement. Yeah, for sure. And it is. I mean, I, I was encouraged working through it and thinking about these ideas and so glad to see some of these kind of modern myths about manhood and marriage and other things corrected and exploded, which needed to be. And it helps us to call, call men to something better and something good. So so again, thank you so much for taking the time to write it. Again, people can find out more at impact360.org. Uh, we are training the next generation of students to help them follow Jesus well. And part of that is understanding God's good design for things like manhood, like womanhood, like truth and worldview and how to live those things out and the cultural mandate and why we believe what we believe. So if we can be helpful to you in your journey, we'd love to be. So send, send your students to Impact360, our fellows, our summer, you know, all the different things impact360.org you'll have links to all of nancy piercy's books including this great book the toxic war on masculinity so again thanks so much for joining us today it's been a wonderful conversation 
Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.